You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni. And usually, you know what I say here, of course, from Yerushalayim, Yerakadish. No, not from Yerushalayim, Yerakadish. Sam Juni is, has made it out of uh, the COVID uh, lockdown and super quarantine. He's been able, after more than a year, to visit his family here. So I'm going to say Sam Judy from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, also perhaps becoming Yerakadish. Sam, we've missed you over the last couple of weeks, and um, I know that your uh, very uh, loyal audience as well uh, has been waiting for new Yisaitis, uh waiting to, 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 for you to stir the pot up. Um, I don't have, uh, you know, obviously a lot of things have happened uh, in Eretz Yisrael and, 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 and throughout. And I know that you're uh, pushing your way through your through your jet lag and getting your uh, sensation back in terms of the United States. Uh, you know, one thing I think that you went through when you made your move was paring down. Uh, I spent wonderful weekends and many, many hours at your house in Flatbush. And when you had to uh, do that, Incredible. Again, I, I could still consider it incredible, and I know it's, Esther has a lot to do with it. Uh, your decision to move to Eretz Yisrael, you, you couldn't just, you had to pare down. You had to decide what was essential to you, what wasn't. If a person makes a move, he has to disinvest himself from possessions. And you've been through that, right, Sam? Yes, I've been through it uh, in, in graduation a couple of times because we actually... Um, got messed up in our place in Israel. So we first were supposed to go to a bigger place and then that fell through and we went to a smaller place. So I did several divestments of um, physical um, possessions as well as some divestments from personal, you know, interpersonal possessions because when you leave, you leave the people behind as well. Yes, I've got right. a lot of divestments and some of it has also introduced significant strife within our family because... Um, Esther, my wife, does not get rid of possessions easily. I don't have much value for anything that's um, symbolic. So we've had quite a few um, um, give and takes, shall we say, about first putting things in the garage. And then eventually, once it's in the garage, you give it away. There are ways to do this gradually without really messing up your ego totally. And, and I think really what you're, what you're describing is, is quite, I don't know if it's universal, <laughs> Uh, there are countries that don't have um, the, uh, I guess, <laughs> the luxury of having so many items. But I think for many of our listeners who come from the Western countries, especially I'll speak here from the United States, this is really a, a major issue. Uh, there is a, a television program um, that is very popular uh, called Hoarders. Uh, and every week uh, in the program, uh, they deal with someone who has and I'm not exactly sure what the DSM uh, description, if there is one, for... for, for yes, there is. Hoarding uh, is fine. That's the description. Okay, hoarding. And what happens is, is that they, they do these interventions. And of course, it's really drawn out. And, and, and it follows a certain pattern. It's, it's in an extreme situation where a person is living in a way that is even in a, a home that has an outwardly beautiful facade, but on the inside, it's 
it, it's it's ugly, it's terrible. It's it, and 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 the person who usually is the uh, prime subject of the of the of, of the program has appears on one level to be a, a decent human being who can converse normally. But then when you get to throwing this stuff out, making life normal, so to speak, for him, they become defensive. Every single object means something. Uh, they're clearly someone who uh, they just don't need a moving uh, van. What they need is someone who can coax them, someone who can deal with their psychological issues. And that, of course, is hoarding in the extreme. But I think many, many families, I'm going to own up myself, my, you know, Sam, you've seen our, you've seen the back here of, you know, this is not a, a, a an enforced, um, you know, background that I use from Zoom. This is my own hoarding area where I have all my farm that I've been collecting and uh, for, for, for many, many years of, of my adult life. So I go through the same thing with my wife as well. You know, do you need these? Do you need these uh, old newspapers from from last year? This article is something that you really want, that you plan to read, that you've put away, uh, and 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 you haven't gotten to it in about five months. No, 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 don't throw that out. Um, so I recognize this even within myself as something that uh, an attachment. Uh, especially as you a sentimental attachment. If it's something that, oh, this was the Sefer Amakna that I bought that first year that I was learning uh, Kedushan. I remember I went to Williamsburg uh, to get it, and I went to the, to, to the H&M bookstore or whatever it was on, uh, on, 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 on that street, and I remember how I was metapu and how I had to argue with the owner, and I finally got it. Um, so, and these things, I have plenty of examples of that. And I think many of our listeners do have also have objects that we invest with a certain power and, 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 and to somehow to not have them anymore, we feel that we're ripping a piece of ourselves, which seems quite unhealthy, but yet it's, it's quite prevalent, I think, in the human condition to want to feel that there's something here that <laughs> that that can somehow represent us. I mean, we've talked you, before. You've chided me a little bit about my attitude towards children and grandchildren as being uh, an outgrowth of, of of trying to leave something eternal. But but I think even without children, possessions seem to 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 mean very large to people. So give us a, a psychological perspective about what what's going on, and is there any way to cure this? Really, I'll be happy to do that. But I just want to tell you that what I find most interesting about the conceptual issue of hoarding is in terms of people and friendships and relationships, which is hoarding people in your collection, hoarding relationships, hoarding friendships. And I will get there, but the basics are essentially object related. There's no question that it starts with things. So again, let's talk about uh, Mervi Rabbi Freud, right? So the, the notion is that, um, there's something called psychosexual development, which means that we are programmed somatically, body-wise, to go through various kinds of stages of, um, it's really a neurological development. And with those stages of neurological development, each has a counterpart, which has to do with relationships towards non-you, objects, people, etc. And uh, the classic is, let's say, in the beginning, you basically can do nothing for yourself and you're very dependent on others to take care of you, to give you the bottle, or to keep you warm or to keep you safe. 
and that the, the um, interpersonal or the object-related um, um, counterpart of that is just learning how to be a dependent individual, how to get what you need without freaking out. Even though you know you can't do it for yourself, you'll learn how to function like that. That's a very important part of adult functioning because often you're in situations where you depend on someone. You can't be the plumber and the baker and the cab driver and the pilot. So obviously you depend on others just to live. Or You can't be, have a cow and be the milkman and also the uh, producer of plastics. You depend on others. It's the second stage, really, which is the uh, the um, launching ground for the uh, pathology of hoarding, and that is the, basically the toilet training stage. And uh, just to be blunt, little kids have a problem going to the bathroom simply because this is the first time something of theirs is leaving. So, in a, in a very crude way, kids find it very threatening. There are kids who get pure anxiety attacks when you teach them how to sit on the toilet. You know, being in a diaper, okay, you don't quite notice what's going on. In the toilet, you actually see part of yourself leaving. That can freak out some kids and they need some kind of reassurance. And the Freudian theory is that if you have particular hardships during age two or so, and the hardships don't necessarily have to do anything with toilets, because if during that period you have major disappointments, traumas, uh, scary events happening in your life, that kind of just associates itself with whatever is going on with you physically and in your mind or in your unconscious then, possessions leaving or coming are associated with traumas like grandma dying or your father beating your mother or your father committing suicide or whatever horrible things happened at that time. So that sets the stage for what we call anal dysfunction. And I just need to stress, anal dysfunction does not mean that you have a problem with your bowel movements. It just means during that period where physically you're dealing just with things leaving your body, that becomes a traumatic era for you. And in your mind, then, you know, hey, anytime when it comes to letting go of things, leaving go of things, saying that these things I can do without, that's going to make you anxious. And the typical result in terms of those DSM uh, diagnostic people is that people don't let go of stuff, even though it is objectively and subjectively irrelevant to them. Nobody needs this newspaper. The idea is just, wait, wait, don't just let go of it. Why? Because that makes me anxious. And in my mind, it associates, it's almost behaviorally, it's not conceptually. Nobody thinks to say, if I get rid of the old tissue boxes, then some horrible calamity is going to come to me. Nobody thinks that consciously. But in your unconscious, that's the association. So that is the building block of the pathology called hoarding. When this is occurring, let's assume, you know, in, in our test case, our uh, idea of this child who's being toilet trained and other things are going on in their life at that time, are they also going to have a harder time in the toilet? Like, will that two-year-old have a harder time? Because yeah, of yes, stuff that's going yes, on? yes, but 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 that's where biology comes in, and that's where reality comes in. We can solve the physical aspects of a difficulty much easier than we can solve the psychological aspects because the physical aspects are not unconscious; it's there. Okay, do you want to go on with a diaper through twelfth grade in school? Nah. So you're going to stop that, but. You don't have that kind of access saying, wait a moment, but this is associated with all kinds of anxieties or whatever. So what you do is you come up with, shall we say, a sanitized 
if I may use that term, a sanitized version of uh, of uh, not wanting to issues uh, the newspapers or tissue boxes or or whatever it may be pencils that don't quite work pens that could theoretically be heated on fire <laughs> again and save me one eighth of a cent it doesn't matter uh, you, okay okay so I, I would have but, said but I must say I must say that in really bad cases you do have people who end up with chronic colitis chronic diarrhea. Um, problems with continence, which is purely based on the psychological, although that only happens with people who are really, really disturbed. Hoarding people, as you say, in out of their hoarding context, appear to be fairly okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, this is re- it, you know, always talking to you is a revelation because, of course, I've heard about people who are anally fixated. And to me, you know, I always thought people who are stuck in the anal stage meant that they were excessively worried about cl- of cleaning, about hygiene. Yeah, that the, the you're high- talking about accountants. You're talking about people who know every time it says Rip um, Shimon followed by Rip Gamliel in, in, in the Gemara, people who collect. People who are collectors. Right. And, and and I always thought, you know, whether it was OCD behavior or other things, that that was a, somehow a an offshoot, uh, an aberration of something in the anal stage. I understood. Yes, yes it I is. I understood but that. You're right about that. So I understood that a person who was in that two-year-old period and something's going on about, you know, the parent is, is saying, you know, look, look at this thing that's coming out of you. Look how dirty it is. Instead of the one-year-old that it's so cute. Oh, he's got a stinky. He's got a stinky. And everybody's so happy about it. And he's got a big smile on his face. Now things change during the anal stage. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, this is something that there's consternation. There's even a hint of anger. There's shame. And so I always there, thought. There's also a lot of strife. Right. So I right. Which which here you have a child who is now just getting his consciousness uh, in, in tune, and now he's hearing these these negative things, and he's not doing things right, and he's and, forced into an adversarial position. Right. 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 He's the one, and 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 then he starts has to lie. Do you have a stinky diaper? And then he does. He says no. But then the parent notices it, and then he's ashamed. So I yes. thought. I, again, in my Tamimis guide and, and not ever going to school about it, I understood that this, the type of, uh, you know, um, anxiety that the parents were showing spills over into the children. And therefore, the child becomes obsessed about cleanliness, obsessed about this, and therefore becomes a neat freak, not a hoarder. So that's the way I always understood, like, weird things happening at the anal stage. So when we say someone is really... But what you're talking about is a caricature, or let's say an extreme. That's not the the usual anal person. You never talk to them about dirt or diapers, never. The question is just, do we really have to stick to the budget to within a dollar? Does it matter? Do you have to go and call up and spend 15 hours with Citibank to collect, to correct the fact for two dollar charge. Uh, yeah, That's I, what we're talking right. About. So, the, right, but that you, you're you're telling me that those people, but those people, I I think if we would do a uh, uh, an empirical uh, investigation, I don't think we would find a Venn diagram that connects those people with people who are hoarders at the same time. Your pencil pusher, uh, um, you know, accountant or this guy who's worried about who will spend five hours on the phone uh, to make sure that the 25 cent uh, thing is, is correct. 
Is that going to is that a, would you say that's the type of person that you wouldn't be surprised would have a bunch of things in his house, like we said before about uh, I don't know, I, I, w- I would be surprised because most people don't end up being hoarders. Most people who have problems in the oral dependency stage don't end up being overweight and don't end up eating food the whole time. That's like a real extreme case. It's like saying someone who um, goes to the beach once a year ends up with melanoma. No. It's, but the, sure, but the, it's, the same, it's the same parsha, but it's so extreme that okay. I would say there's no empirical correlation, none. Maybe you'll find like a, something explaining 1%, 0.1% of the variance, but no, I consider that it's like saying somebody who is, um, let's say, in a bad mood is in the same category as somebody who is clinically depressed and has to be on medication. Okay. Let, let, me, let, let me, without getting too graphic, let, let me put it this way. The person who is obsessed about cleanliness is one aspect of the toilet training, which, which is, you know, you know it's got to be clean. It's got to be perfect. You've got to... Whereas the hoarder, the way you've described it, is the person who really has the, the same frustrations about not exuding the waste in their body is similar to not getting rid of the waste that's all around them. That's something yes. different than the cleanliness part, uh, the shaming of the cleanliness part. It's actually, uh, 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 it, it's, it's, it's total, and to me, it's a little bit of a different direction, right? Let me, let me, let me give you the, the, the uh, rule of thumb here. The real rule of thumb here is that the more outlandish and marginal the issue is, the more it takes up of your um, concentration or focus on life to the exclusion of being able to do things called normal in your society. So let's say the hoarder, um, the guy who's obsessed with cleanliness or, or neatness or whatever, that doesn't interfere that much with the rest of his life. Hoarding becomes a major bane of somebody's existence to the point that they can't even, they never can invite somebody to their house, but they actually can't get into some of their bedrooms even. So now it's the more, that's the general rule of thumb that um, the less central it is to interfering with your general functioning, the more marginal it is by definition. Okay, I, I want to tell you when- you say, know. From a psychological point of view, definitely I'm much more fascinated with non-hoarding aspects and things that have to do with the relationships that invade or invasive into the- Okay, and you know what, I'm-, I'm, I'm Clinically I'm, speaking, clinically speaking, I love people who are still need to take a diaper with them every time they're in the <laughs> car, just, I'm not kidding now, just in case, the hoarders who have never thrown out a used toothpick, okay? And I know them personally, and they support my mortgage, okay? So I know these people very <laughs> well, but they're not fascinating. It's almost like textbook. The okay. other people are fascinating, those people who maintain toxic relationships, those people who okay. can't get themselves out of a mentoring situation, which is killing them, those people who can't quit a profession because you just don't do that. Those are more exciting, but I oh. understand your fascination <laughs> caricatures. I got I, it. Okay, you, uh, Sam, I'm going to let you go there and run wild in a minute. No, no, no. I, okay. I just want to, before we get to the more abstract hoarding that you want to speak about, I, I just want to throw in uh, just one more more thing here. Um, and again, you know, Mibsarai Terse, as Chabad, you know, Hasidah said, that you you understand things from your own self. When when my wife and children chide me for having this hoarding 
uh, tendency in terms of sfarim, in terms of reading material, um, not so much in terms of objects and, and buying stuff or, you know, shirts or, 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 you know, when you see these hoarders on, on television, you see that they hoard like, like everything. To me, it's, you know, it's very centered. But I, I always trace it. And I've talked to you. I've been very uh, open with you as a, as a friend and uh, an advisor. And I even on this program about my past, I always uh, it, it connected my desire to get Svarim and having more to what was going on when we had nothing, you know, growing up, I always had got the message how from my parents that, you know, we can't afford this. You can't have this. Um, this is something, you know, we, we had to live in a much smaller house than, than anybody I knew. Uh, we only had. So to me, the Simcha was always buying the Safer, not necessarily, you know, going into the room and looking at it on the shelf. There was this incredible um, high of, purchasing having it i have something um you know you know i, I am not a, a prisoner i'm not uh, insignificant and i think that for many people their possessions uh, what really got them there was that moment of acquisition that moment that they could actually pay for it get it have it and and there's nothing that and and somehow it just stays with them residually is what i'm saying uh, in line with uh, what we've been talking about in terms of the hoarding personality. Okay, I want to not kill this horse. Okay, so let me let me just explain something to you. Um, if you were raised in a um, an atmosphere or a context of deprivation, there is no question that you will have an interest in owning things. Okay, the Macbeth. Okay, the lady protests too much. The Zinger here is the way you describe it, that you get a high out of it. You don't get a high out of possessing things if you were raised in an environment that doesn't have much. You have a good feeling. High implies something very basic. And that, as Sigmund says, means something basic two-year-old. In other words, if you would not have had problems with anxieties about going to the bathroom as a child you would not get any highs of getting sperm. You'd feel good. You'd feel vindicated. You'd be talking to your father in your mind saying, look, dad, I know we weren't able to afford it then. Look where we are now. I have my own set of Rambams and I know you didn't. You had to borrow it from the shul. But a high, once you say hi, that's something that's very basic and that harkens back to the two-year-old stage where you could not go to the bathroom without reading a book at the same time because you felt whatever I'm losing in my body, I'm gaming in spirit, okay? So that's <laughs> a radical position, which I am telling you that these days, many, many, many psychologists disagree with me. No psych, all psychoanalysts agree, but psychologists will say no. Experiences that happen during formative years, during teenage years, maybe even during young adulthood, when you manage to overcome that, you feel great and you feel excited and it's more exciting than reminiscing about going to the bathroom as a two-year-old. So again, this is a question of religion. That's my religion. I espouse it. I claim that I see it every day. But then again, yes, I'm biased. Okay. All right. So Sam- is dead, I hope. <laughs> okay. Look, you know, it, it's far from being dead in my mind, but I will definitely move on. <laughs> I, 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 I will definitely... <laughs> I, look, I, you know, I, I have to tell you, Shmuel, that I have become a lot less um, 
obsessive about buying used farm and making sure I get the latest things. And you know, I, I, good I, move. Well, I think it, it. I think it aligns with all the uh, like I, we've talked about. You know, you know, as you age and you medicate yourself in certain ways, so a lot of these things that used to uh, push you so much are blunted. So let's talk about this other thing. And again, I think this is very um, relevant, not just for watching television and watching things about hoarding. I think all of us today, as we are coming out of um, the pandemic and uh, are, are thinking a lot about our friends. We're thinking a lot about who's part of our circle and, and, and things like that. And maybe we'll do another program about what the efficacy of friendship and the purpose of friendship. But you're right. There are people at, at this point thinking a lot about, okay, who am I connected to? Uh, who's part of my group? Um, and, 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 and sometimes as you know, in the extreme, when we talk about, you know, uh, on Facebook, you have 5,000 friends and things like that, which of course is an extreme version. So tell me, you know, how, uh, about what you want to uh, expand this, this hoarding mentality to the hoarding of this virtual hoarding or this hoarding in, in your mind of, of the friends and relationships that you have. Go ahead. Okay. So let's say starting with the toothpick, right? You don't want to throw the tooth because it's always possible uh, in some case that you might need it or might come in handy. I can't, I can't even, I, I can't really get into that person's shoes because I'm so defended against my anal anxieties. But uh, again, you can think of um, all kinds of bizarre uh, reasoning why you want to hold on to a toothache. So let's uh, think in terms of, let's say, a friendship. This is somebody who was your best friend um, for the first two years of grade school. And then it goes on, he's your best friend for the next two years, et cetera. And now you're an adult and you still meet him for drinks. And the person probably doesn't have any of the values you have, doesn't have any of the interests you have, but he is your buddy. Why are you holding on to him? What's, what, what's shot over you? Okay. And essentially from an unconscious point of view, you've just learned you don't let go of anything because if you let go, there'll always be terrorists because of some kind of happenstantial things that happened to you around possessions in early childhood. So, and I think it's very harmful. It's very harmful. I think that there should be like a reassessment, just like, let's say your stockbroker. Well, okay. If you have money, your stockbroker says, okay, you're coming in for a consult. You're paying me $800. We're going to go through your portfolio for the next half hour. And we're going to decide not what to keep. What would you buy now? It makes no difference what you had before. Okay. Uh, think of the um, uh, notion of social psychology, right? You have a car. It's costing you a wealth of money. You keep fixing it. And at some point, the mechanic says, Mr. Whatever, dump this car now. He says, but all it needs is X and Y and Z. He says, Dump it. I see what's happening here. This is making you lose your house and home. You can purchase a brand new car and do much better with it. That kind of hazard, so to speak, that kind of evaluation should exist for um, relationships as well. And if I can be a little bit more radical, I think it should exist for all relationships. I think it should exist for marriages. Okay, now I'm not saying it'll end up disrupting you because maybe after you do the analysis, you say, okay, so I don't love my husband anymore. I'm not excited about him, but he's okay. And it's much more pleasant to live together with someone. I don't want to be alone. And it's much more pleasant to live with someone. What am I going to get a new one? And I'll have different problems there. I'm used to it. It's an old shoe. But at least I'm not telling you dump your relationships, but assess them. Inertia is not a good thing. It's a good thing 
once you face it in the eye and say, yeah, I don't mind. Why should I move somewhere else? I'm living in this house. But it keeps you tied down sometimes. And especially if you still have any potential for creativity or reassessing, this bogs you down. You have no capacity for doing that if you're tied down to relationships, to commitments. If you have to go bowling every Thursday night with the boys, eh, I don't even like bowling anymore. In fact, I don't think I ever liked it. I just went there because I had an opportunity to, to get out of the house or get away from my kids who were screaming or whatever. You know, I have this Havrusa, okay, for the last 20 years. He's a dud. He's a dud. Why am I sticking with him? I've moved to a new neighborhood. There's much more interest in Havrusas. Whatever it is, I have to, wa- I have to watch the same, uh, uh, um, uh, the crown, okay? I have to watch it every bit. <laughs> You don't like it, cut it out. And just because you made a commitment, it's like having a commitment to some broken shoes. Throw the shoes out already. I mean, I, I'm yelling about this because I know many, many, besides patients, I have many, many friends, some of them shouldn't be friends anymore, who are going through these sorrows simply because that's the way they always did it. That is the worst part of hoarding. I would rather have a house full of newspapers than a uh, portfolio full of friends whom I don't want to have. Yeah, I, again, just to make a little bit of, I think, of a subtle but important difference. I think when it comes to hoarding, the capacity or the potential of filling it with you know, all, all, every single nook and cranny with something else is possible. Whereas in human life, in terms of the amount of hours you have, what, when you have the old friends or the old relationships, you're not going to be able to add 25 more. You're going to be stuck with those 20. Mm-hmm. The, the classic hoarder, uh, the way it's portrayed, has it goes up to the roof and beyond. Right. You can't right. do that with friends. What you're talking about is being bogged down with sort of infantile uh, connections to people that we really have nothing in common with anymore and, and aren't doing anything. Now, 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 Sam, you admit that a person who friends are very crucial for mental health, for physical health, for sure. giving you, for giving you a sounding board. Um, and for giving with, you an identity for an identity as well. Right, sure. right. And, and people who don't have friends consistently die earlier, have mm-hmm. are, 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 are subject to obesity and other things. Friends, And they stop existing before they die because there's not much essence left to them. Sure. So, so having that group now, whether it's five or seven or whatever the number is, is important. What you're talking about, I think, is you're here with these seven or eight based on the past, based on where you were, and, and, and you're not allowing yourself to go beyond or, or replace them with things which are more, in Hebrew, we would say matim, to what you are today. Am I yes. right in getting what, what you're saying? Ab- abs- absolutely. Absolutely, yes. yes. So, so it's not the same situation, but it all comes from those problems you had when you were age two. There's no question in my mind. People who did not have significant problems at age two, have no problem reassessing everything, including, if I may say, their religious commitments. They have no problem doing that. It's not like, oh, this is what I'm stuck with. You can, so to speak, if I can be like a physically allegorical, you can let go. You don't have to keep it all in. It's fine. You can let go. Okay, but Sam, you know, in the virtual world, now that there's the, we have virtual lives, lives where we exist as avatars or as people on on, on Facebook, 
the concept of friendship, as I was trying to say before, has been multiplied, where a person can actually go and, on and Facebook. diluted, multiplied and oh diluted. yes, so because they look how many friends I have, and 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 and, and you actually spend time. Uh, which we didn't have before because of the instantaneous method of checking this guy's pictures out, this guy's pictures out, and your brain is now working, looking about every, whatever, everybody's photos of what they've been doing on their vacation and what's and, going and if on. And if I may add that the converse is, and you don't really have time for any friendships that would be considered meaningful otherwise. In other words, the quantity and the shallowness of all this actually precludes having real relationships. So I can tell you in my family, they are the norm is you don't call, you WhatsApp or send a text. You don't call, you don't talk to someone because again, I'm being cynical. That would mean really really relating to them. Whereas this is the superficial. And yes, on paper, yes, I've had contact. I was in touch with my daughter. You were in touch sending an emoji in response to some kind of canned blurb she put on, instead of calling and saying, let's talk a little. It's, 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 it's wild. It's wild. I mean, what the virtual stuff has done has really encroached on friendships. I think what's really happening is that the interpersonal quality of human life is going down the toilet. I think that's what's happening here. Boring is a Michigan example, but in terms of being stuck with relationships, it doesn't allow you to relate to others or to yourself. And relationships these days as being reduced to some kind of ridiculous kind of, you know, tweet, which is under 48 characters or 248 characters. I think we are resulting basically in dehumanizing ourselves and becoming just objects. We're becoming objects. So, so you see them all really, as you just said, aspects of the same issue. So would you say that somebody, again, I'm going to put it back to you because you, you know, you, you, you put the, my, you put the, the scalpel on myself, which I let myself, I, I opened myself for it. And I'm not, I'm not angry that I did that uh, or, or upset. Would you say also people like people in your family and others uh, throughout people are listening here who now have like hundreds of friends on Facebook and spend a good amount of time scrolling their Facebook, looking this, answering, answering, a, putting a thumbs up here, an emoji there. Would you say that they also, in a way, have had issues during their anal period? Yep. They, I say we. Look, everybody has issues in their anal period. If you would have no issues during any period, you come out being a blank slate. You're not going to be a person. Every person is basically a profile or a, a, a portfolio of the different hassles they've had at these different stages, how they've resolved them, not resolved them. And that's what makes you, you, and makes me, me. Otherwise, we would all be so similar that we might as well go and stare at the mirror all day and go nowhere. So sure, issues make sense. The question is, if the issues were damaging enough that they kept you stuck at that place. <laughs> So, so those social scientists who are blaming um, the the ultra pervasiveness of social media might be zeroing in on the wrong boogeyman, right? Because no, they, they they're zeroing in on the sub boogeyman. In other words, those boogeymen are real, but without their being able to get their pathological sustenance from some kind of real underlying issue. There are people who are not caught by the bug. There are people who know WhatsApp 
and they know Zoom and they know Instagram. And I don't even know the names of all these animals out there, okay? Who know them and say, leave me alone. I know people who actually don't have internet and not because they are bells of Hasidim. They just say, I don't want to be cluttered by this. Leave me a message on my phone recording, okay? So in other words, it takes a certain kind of underlying uh, disquiet or underlying troubling history to zoom onto this, just like it takes a certain personality to become an addict, let's say, of gambling or of sex or whatever it is people get addicted to, of drugs, the same way you need to have a certain kind of underlying background to get stuck on this. Yeah, I, I, let me just add one little personal observation. And I know I've added a number of personal things here because you know, in the, um, uh, I guess, the vocation that I am now involved in, which, as you know, is sort of like professional uh, semi-pro podcaster. And you know that, of course, besides the conversations that I have with you, uh, I have conversations with people. And in fact, one of them I've never even met. And it's, of course, uh, you are the, uh, the you're our shatran, uh, Rav Kolokowski, who I've never even met. And we've been talking for months and months, uh, having a, a program which many people enjoy. But my point, though, is, is not just to give a commercial here, although I do, I hope everybody will check out other things that we have on our, our platform. But I've had to call people and, 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 and find people from my past in order to uh, populate the program, I've, uh, the programs. So I've reached into my mind and thinking, who can I connect to that I can have a conversation with? Who can I speak with that could be my sort of friend again? Because if you speak to someone and each person is answering in these cold tones, that's not a, anything anyone wants to listen to. So I have to try to create friendships, so to speak, in order for conversations to ensue. That's really what I believe is one of the secrets of podcasting, which is you need to have chemistry with the person you're talking to. There needs to be a back and forth. There needs to be something going on. So what I've done is, and again, this is my point, I've had to reach back and try to scrape off old people and, and reach out to them and say, hey, do you want to talk? And what I've discovered, Shmuel, is that some of them, I'll speak for, you know, if they'll answer me on the, if they will pick up the phone or answer me back, there's nothing there anymore. Like, even though they were someone who was, was my roommate for a number of years, and we had the wildest, most interesting experiences together, I can tell after about two, three minutes of, of talking that there's really nothing between us anymore. And yet there are others who I haven't spoken. There's some, there's a person who I have, I, before we started podcasting, I hadn't spoken to in really 35 years or 35 years. And yet once we started to talk again, it was like no time had lapsed. We had, it was like we were back where we were. And I, I, and, and I know that it was fulfilling. So what I'm trying to say, Shmilu, is the, what I've learned is that even relationships you think you've moved on from you might be surprised going back there and discovering that, hey, there was th the reason why we were such good friends back then is because there was something beyond convenience. It was beyond the fact that we were both cellmates at the same yeshiva slash prison. It's because there was there was a, 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 a similarity in mindset, a similarity in ideas. There, it was just there was we, 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 we complemented each other well. And we can discover later that we can still complement each other. 
and come with each other even in our mature forms, in our old forms, in our dotage, so to speak. So, so I, I think that there is something there to go back to. It isn't just necessarily holding on to, you know, relationships that are decrepit. Sometimes these relationships are the, the, that we forge at the young age really mean something. And there's ways I can know this person that I will never be able to know someone now that I'm in my 60s. A new relationship is never going to have that. It's not just the past and the history. It's also the openness and, and, and memory of what we had and how wonderful it is to share it again and to expand it. I don't know. If, I think it, what you're doing classically is reifying the, the formula that I think we just came up with before is that you have the capacity to reassess a relationship and it can go either way. You can reassess it and drop it or reassess it saying, hey, this should not be dropped. This is worthwhile resurrecting. So, but the point is what's positive about the way you're describing it is that you're making a decision, looking in the face and saying, is this worth it? And the flip side is that some of them you reassess and you say, no way, let it stay buried. It's buried for good reason. totally not related. So that's fine. There's nothing wrong with maintaining a relationship or re-evoking a relationship if it's not done just to maintain inertia or to keep the books balanced. I guess I I didn't make the point well enough. It's not so much, you were saying before, Shmilo, that, that, that what we should do is now you're older, stop it with these people that you were friendly with way back then, your bowling buddies. Who are you? And who are the people that mean stuff to you? The, the problem is, I think, is that to wipe the slate clean and say, okay, now I'm going to go find my new people. At the age of 60, 70, you are a different person than you were at 20 and 30. But are you going to be able to do that? The only pool that you really have is the pool of the past. The pool, uh, again, how You're many- talking in terms of your um, um, psychological capacity or in terms of your just ability to go out there and strike a new friend at a bar? I, I, it's not just your uh, uh, ability. I think society in general, and again, I've unfortunately been a Rabbi Machsher in a nursing home, and I see the, 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 the type of forced, ugly, and, and tragic camaraderie that occurs when older people are bunched together and where mm-hmm. they're, they're only together as, as sort of, and they're, they're, they're infantile and childlike in their anger about where they are and how they hate the institution. But before they're ready for the Moshe of Zikainim situation, when they're in the vintage of, let's say, I'm going to say you and me and others, and now they're saying, well, who am I going to hang out with? Who am I going to talk with? Who are going to be my people? It, 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 it's, 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 it's difficult to be able to find them because of, of, of our limited physical capacity. And, and therefore, going back to that old Rolodex seems to be the, the, the best way to do it. Um, am I wrong here or, or am I? No, I mean, practically, you make a lot of sense. Practically, ideally, it's lacking. But sure, practically, you ain't got no choice. Nobody's interested. I, somebody made an interesting observation. There are very few people specializing and making balay tshuva of senior citizens, right? It's just not there. So the, the option of becoming a chabat shliach at age um, 59, ah, they won't look at your application. So of course, and, and conceptually it shouldn't be so, you know, but 
But sure, no, reality is a little bit ugly. I'll buy that. And, and, and really, so, so I would just sort of say, you know, Sam Juni is saying, you know, dump these people because you're only connected to them. If, I- if, if, you, if you can hack it, if you have the um, uh, circumstantial and the, uh, the fortitude um, um, strength to do it, sure, dump them. But no, I understand. Look, I, as I said before, it's very hard to dump. You can't dump your mother. And you often can't dump your children, and you often can't dump your spouse, and you can't dump your religion, and you can't dump your rabbi. So sometimes, you, or your landlord, for that matter, you're stuck. You're stuck. I mean, and, and you might be able, I, I think you'll agree, and I know you're not just trying to be nice to me about this. You might even be able to discover people who you were friends with that you had dumped already, but you can sure. go back and get them again. And the reason is... The recycle bin is always there. Right. And I think that's what the the same thing that you've decried, the prevalence of social media has also what's risen along with it is the ability to find my old best friend from sixth grade. I can find them because there is a Facebook for them. Uh-huh. I haven't been there. There's there's ancestry. There's all these types of uh, things available that you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to be able Right, sure. The person. access is there, and then you can say, wow, how did I let go of this person? Or what did I ever see in this person? Right, right. But but if it's that person, and then you could like say, hey, hello, we haven't talked in a long time. And, you, and you'll be, I think, sometimes you'll be pleasantly surprised that that person says, oh, I had the greatest memories. We did the greatest things together. And, and you'll, you'll find out soon whether it's just empty nostalgia or the the life path that that person has taken parallels and complements what yes. you've been doing. And in a way it's so deep because you're going to be always able, not just to wallow in the past, but to use that past pool as a means of projecting towards the future. I got just be careful. I'll be ready for the response. When you say I haven't spoken to you in years, I've gotten this, the response I got, and let's keep it that way. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.